Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, a terrorist attack in France. How do you cope during a global pandemic? New Finance Minister Christia Freeland says we live in a different world now, and debt isn't a bad thing. And your kids and technology during a global pandemic. Is it a savior or the end of the world? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. It's a time change weekend. The clocks move back one hour Saturday night. That's an extra hour of Halloween during a very scary year. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Whip it. Whip it down. Whip it down. Whip it good. You got to level that curve. Come on. Flatten that. Plank it. We can do it. We can do it. Good afternoon. It is 1211. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air. Feel free to jump into the conversation. Uh, we would love to hear from you. Feel free. You know, the commentary today, it's a positive one about COVID-19. And I know that, uh, you know, we're right in the middle of this thing, the second wave, all that sort of stuff. However, however, let's not forget there is a vaccine which is due up the mid uh, part of next year, uh, spring, summer, before it gets into the arms of Canadians, things will start to change then. Not overnight, not right away. It will never go back to the uh, to what we thought of as normal. It will be a new normal, but things will get better. And uh, the Premier alluding yesterday that some of the projections are positive if we can continue to flatten the curve. Uh, and again, it's not like we have not done this before. Feel free to uh, give us your thoughts with the commentary on Facebook and Twitter. You can also send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right, uh, as I mentioned, just tragic of Events happening uh, in the last 24 hours in France. Uh, three people have been killed in a knife attack uh, that has uh, that is suspected to be terrorism. To talk about all of this, Crystal Gamansing is with us, Europe Bureau Chief Global News, and on the line now. Crystal, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty good. So uh, bring us up to date here. Uh, first, tell us what happened and where we are now. Well, right now, uh, I'll sort of start with the, the, what we know at this very moment. We know that the attack level in France has been raised to urgent, that places of worship across the country are being monitored for safety and security, so it's sort of stepped up the monitoring at these sort of locations, and it all stems from an, an attack at about 9 o'clock this morning in Nice. The Notre Dame Basilica in Nice um, saw a, a violent attack. A man uh, walked into the, into the church. Uh, he had a knife. Several people were attacked. As you mentioned, three people were killed. Police did apprehend that individual. He was shot. He is now in hospital uh, being treated for his injuries. It wasn't the only attack, however. There was also an incident in Avignon, not too far away from Nice, about 300 kilometers away. Uh, In that case, police say they shot and killed a man who was threatening people with a knife on the street. And there was a third attack, this one in Saudi Arabia and Jeddah, not in France, but it happened at the French consulate. A security guard was was stabbed. So a very, very intense, heightened situation. Um, uh, You know, people in in the community in Nice are obviously very concerned 
concerned. We don't have a lot of information about the individuals who were, were killed or, or, or even those who were injured. All we know about the attacker at this point is that that person is in custody. The French President Emmanuel Macron has made his way to Nice. He uh, saw people who were at the church. He did address the media. And while this is still being investigated as a possible terrorist attack, uh, the French President did say that it appears the country has again been hit by Islamist terrorists. Um, He went on to say that, you know, he stands with those in the Catholic community. This did happen at a church. And that's why we are seeing sort of more efforts in in monitoring at all places of worship. So a very intense situation right now in France. So obviously more than one attack. Uh, Any information at this point as to whether they are related in some way? And obviously, uh, you know, this this activity has increased in France. This is the second beheading in two weeks. So uh, do we know anything about these events actually being related? Is there any information to suggest that? looking at is that these are attacks being said, you know, are linked back to that one uh, last week where um, Samuel Paty, a, um, a, a teacher, was uh, was beheaded on the street. And that was supposedly in relation to him showing images, uh, cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad in his class. Uh, and and after that that murder, we saw the French president come out and saying that you know, they need to crack down on extremism, and that sort of, you know, set off a larger concern in, in some of, you know, the Muslim nations. There are bans for uh, a stop on exports or imports from, from France, calls for, for um, you know, people to to pay attention, for people to saying that, you know, this is this is a blanket attack on all Muslims, that, you know, these, these radical incidents are, are perpetrated by a very, very small number of individuals, and so that seems to be the trend here. But again, when we have these attacks, regardless of where they occur in the world, we often see the Muslim community coming out and having to defend itself. And that's what we're seeing again today. The the vice president of the regional Muslim council coming out today and saying, listen, you know, we as as the Muslim community, um, you know, we do not condone these attacks. He used the word that they are deeply dismayed and revolted by what has happened. So again, you have the community coming out and saying, you know, this, this is not us. This is not what we do. This is a very small um, side group who are perpetrating these attacks. So, but there are, uh, you know, you know, fractions that are being created in in the community, not only in France but all over the world, because of this situation. Crystal, obviously, uh, an issue pro, uh, before uh, pre-COVID nineteen, and then obviously during this pandemic, this sort of activity has settled down a little bit. Why the increase in this activity now in France? Well, it really seems to be linked back, uh, at least these, these recent incidents, to the, uh, the, the murder of the, uh, of, of the French teacher, uh, Samuel right. Paty. Uh, since we saw that incident last week, we have seen, as I said, protests in a number of countries, uh, calling for, uh, you know, the, the, you know, 
um, concern over a rise in Islamophobia, calling for tolerance and acceptance and, and for there to be uh, a clear separation between the Muslim community and this small group of, of um, you know, um, extremists. So this seems to be the, the issue or the thing that sort of reignited this concern. However, it does harken back to, you say, 2015, when we saw the attack at Charlie Hebdo in Paris um, and then the cascading copycat attacks, if you will, that sort of resulted from that one incident, which is, you know, obviously a, a great concern not only in France but, you know, around the world. And we are seeing leaders from Canada, for the Italy, uh, UK, all coming out and condemning these attacks, which, you know, an, an attack at a church, I think everyone can agree, is absolutely horrific. So, Crystal, do you think this is a sign that terrorism is real, uh, rearing its ugly head again? As I mentioned, during the pandemic, people were more concerned about that uh, than perhaps this, and and we hadn't heard of, of many terrorist-type activities. Is this a sign that you, do you think this is a sign that we're heading back to pre-COVID-19, a pre-COVID-19 world? I, I think what this is 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 uh, proof that um, you know language is important, that understanding is important, and that these things can flare up and 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 cause major issues. We have seen over the over the years um, sort of a less organized situation with with the Taliban uh, and and then you know even with um, the so-called Islamic State or these groups sort of being. Um, uh, dismantled somewhat. Uh, so we are seeing sort of more individual issues. I don't think it's ever gone away. I think it has sort of ebbed and flowed. And the concern is that it will, you know, increase now after these few attacks. So where is France now in, as far as uh, preparation for what could be a copycat situation here, especially considering the incidents that have hap- uh, happened previously? Well, the three incidents today, again, the two in France, the one outside of the country, that that threat level, that attack level now being raised. Um, obviously, the, the um, incident at uh, the church in Nice is, is still under investigation. It is still a developing investigation. Um, but like I said, there are more uh, military members who are being prepared to, to help and, and, and monitor the streets. Uh, places of worship will have increased monitoring to ensure that people are safe. And at this point, it, we're waiting to get more information to see if any other individuals are being uh, sought as potentially involved with these attacks or if they really were sort of just you know, perpetrated by one individual. The person that did this is still alive. How crucial is that? What sort of information can police or, or officials get from that? In many cases, this is a suicide bomber or whatever situation where where uh, they get taken out. Uh, this person obviously still alive. Their condition and, and what sort of information they could get. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't have any other information other than that individual was shot by police. He is in hospital being treated for his injuries. Uh, the last report, we know that he was still alive and in hospital. But what kind of information they are able to get from this person, if they're able to get any information, is unknown. The individual uh, associated with the incident in Avignon, he was shot and killed. Um, the incident in um, Saudi Arabia, that individual was uh, taken into custody. Um, so often, often the um, 
you know, we'll interrogate these individuals and look for more information. And then the days following, sometimes we see a sort of wider investigation created. We have to remember that, you know, in, in many places in Europe, there is um, intense monitoring and scrutiny of many individuals potentially linked to extremism. Um, however, there are people who are saying, you know, that that, that net is so wide that it is uh, nearly impossible to to do a good job of monitoring all of these individuals. So we're probably going to hear more about that as well in the coming days. All right, last question, Crystal. Uh, Obviously, this is all happening in the midst of a global pandemic. We certainly know uh, Europe and and its position where it is in this pandemic, and obviously everybody's suffering from fatigue. You combine that with this tragedy. What's the mood there? I mean, mean, it, it just must be, it must be incredibly weighty. Well, France is supposed to be going into a national lockdown as of tomorrow until December. So the the situation with the pandemic is sort of another, uh, you know, issue all on its own, which, you know, is a very, very serious situation in France when it comes to uh, COVID-19 infections. They're looking at more than 36,000 per day. Um, this week, we saw a record number of deaths on Tuesday. More than 500 deaths were reported. That is, uh, those are numbers we haven't seen since, since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, So a national lockdown is set to take place in France starting tomorrow. People being told, you know, you're supposed to stay home, only go out to get some essential groceries or for medical appointments, Um, you know, one hour of exercise per day. so it'll it'll be interesting to see how things play out over over the next couple of days because there is a very serious situation with the pandemic in France as well. Crystal Gamansing's been with us, Europe Bureau Chief, Global News. Three people have been killed in a knife attack in France, and uh, again the activity continues. France obviously having to deal with this on top of a pandemic. Crystal, thanks so much for the time and insight. Greatly appreciated. Be well. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Christia Freeland, Deputy uh, Deputy Prime Minister and, of course, Minister of Finance, says there will be heavy but limited spending going on due to the pandemic. Many are concerned about how far in debt we are going. Uh, obviously, we have to take care of those who are in need, but how much higher can the deficit go? And also an interesting twist yesterday, the Bloc Quebecois bringing forward a motion uh, in the House saying the federal government should apologize for the October crisis. Let's bring in Henry Jasek, Professor of Political Science at McMaster University. He is with us now. Henry, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, Scott. So, uh, interesting quotes, and I'm taking this out of a CBC article uh, in regard to the finance minister uh, talking about, obviously, the uh, amount of debt that we're going into. And this is a quote. uh, She says, now for Canadians of a certain vintage. (laughs) And I I think that's you and me. uh, (laughs) (laughs) And she says herself, she admits herself, uh, freely admit to uh, being one of them. She says, the idea of increasing government debt holds particular terror. Uh, and again, making reference to uh, uh, the fiscal turmoil of the mid-1990s, but goes on to say, but it is a poor general who fights the last war, and the reality is today the prevailing global economic environment has changed entirely. Uh, your thoughts about that? I mean, is it? do we have to start thinking this uh, in a different light? Is, uh, is it different than, say, our parents' generation? Yeah, well, I think that terror, uh, just to just say a word, that word terror is probably a bit overdone. People might be concerned, and it goes against probably what they, uh, you know, 
people were brought up on or experience we had in you know the 70s 90s and, uh but uh yeah but i the um i think the world is different and and i think it, she i can't remember i think she did maybe reference in her some of her remarks about the uh the uh, governor of the Bank of Canada, who pointed out that uh, it's v- right now, with the uh, amount of debt that the government has, it's much easier to carry it than, say, debt that you would have had during the Chrétien uh, Martin years in the 1990s, where there, where, where the debt was uh, 6% of gross domestic product, and it's less than 1% domestic product now. And that's because the interest rates are very low, and um, surprisingly low for a long period of time. A lot of people thought they'd been going; they should go up at some point. They don't go up, and I think most uh, most economic, you know, observers and economists think that uh, we're not likely to have our interest rates go up for quite some time, and uh, and that so in fact uh, the debt is not really uh, as big a problem as it would have been for uh, you know those of us who might have uh, in earlier years been uh, more worried about it. And again, as you said, this is due to the fact that uh, interest rates have been historically low. I remember way back when uh, everybody was wondering when the bubble was going to burst and when these interest rates were going to go up. And I think we've been saying that for 10 years now. Uh, That being said... Uh, there still is only one direction that they can go in at this point. Is this a case of, well, you know, it's not something that our generation has to worry about it, so we're going to keep going, you know, full steam ahead? Or at what point do you say, yeah, that's the way it is? Obviously, the, uh, the Christia Freeland referring to uh, the older generation, well, when this generation becomes the older generation, is this problem going to be the kids? And, you know, we look back and go, yeah, it was different for them, but now it's way different for us yeah. should this in other words still be tended to it'll be tended to but you know things may happen a bit differently what i would expect is that the government uh, as long as we have the virus uh, people i mean it's going to affect economic behavior and and in, in, in scaring people in the sense that so i mean well, let's suppose we told everybody you can take any plane you want to anywhere in the world from canada to canada go ahead people the planes are still going to be pretty much empty. I've got some friends who work for some airlines, and they talk about, oh, yeah, their they're cabin crew going to, to Germany and stuff, and they come back on the plane, and one of them, and they say, yeah, you know, it's a 400 seats on the plane, and uh, I've got 52 people on uh, inside the wow. plane. And, mm. and, and, and people are just not, you know, it's going to be a while before people get over their fear yeah. of doing things. So, uh so I think that's why it's important. To, the only way we're going to get rid of the fear is we've got to bring those the cases and those deaths down and the hospitalizations down. And that, I think that has to be job number one. And I think that's what most of the political authorities and certainly the health authorities in Canada see. You know, unless we unless we can really get this thing down uh, really dramatically, we're not going to have confidence in people. People will live. A number, a number of people will live in fear, and it's going to hold back the economy. So that, that being said, as I mentioned before, there is light at the end of the tunnel in the yeah. sense that, you know, when we're in a war, when we're in a recession, we really don't know when we're coming out of it. And as you rightly so mentioned, even though all of a sudden, boom, there's a vaccine or we're moving forward or those cases come down, that doesn't change things overnight. People are still going to be uh, very cautious about about moving forward. That being said, mm-hmm. in six months, life will be different. Yeah. Uh, you know, once a vaccination starts, 
starts getting into the arms of Canadians, that will produce, and hopefully those numbers, as you mentioned, go down. Uh, that's going to that, that's going to put some confidence back in the world. What kind of shift are you going to see happen? in or after that six-month period once we get to the middle of next summer and things hopefully start to get back to whatever the new normal is there's going to be a, a a seismic shift at that point don't you think well it will be but i mean if we look back at other type of situations where people had to sacrifice a lot whether from a pandem- uh, pandemic or a war or something like that usually once we get through it and people are at the end of it they take a deep breath and say thank god for this and, you know, the next thing they do is they start spending a whole lot of money. If we look after the Spanish influenza, you know, right after that, you went through three really bad years, worse than we're having. And right after that, what happened? We had the Roaring Twenties. People were spending money like mad and, and doing very, very well. And it permeated all through society. I know my grandfather, who was a, an immigrant to North America, came, probably came, uh, you know, came over on fourth class, as my grandmother would say. Yeah. from Europe you know he was at the steerage he had his fa- he had a farm by the, you know he had a farm by the 27 or 28 he'd been you know over here and he was able to save money and had a very nice farm within right after that period so and he was and then he you know so he was at the bottom pretty much of the economic ladder at that point these immigrants who came in from Europe and you know had a quarter to their name when they landed and uh so that so we had that after world war 2 the same sort of thing uh there i was a little boy but i can remember you know that period after world war 2 boy people were spending on everything and they felt wonderful and uh you know it's uh, so i i'm i'm looking at history i think what we're going to do is we're going to start spending a lot of money and when we know when people start spending a lot of money not only do they feel go- good but government feels good for at least a couple of reasons, but one of the main reasons is their their tax revenue increases dramatically. And we look after World War II, uh, we had tremendous debt at the end of World War II. We never had a, uh, you know, we never we never had to really tax people to for the all our war expenditures because basically we we got it in ta- you know from the economy expanding and, right. and with all the increased tax money. So I I have a feeling I have a feeling a lot of that is going to happen. I mean, I ask people, and I look at myself and other people, and I see they're not spent. You know, this is the part of the you know uh, the part of the population that's still getting you know income coming in, and they're they're looking and they're they're not just not spending it. I mean, they're yeah. you know they're not going out to restaurants, they're not traveling to Europe on vacations or anywhere else to vacations. They're they you know they're they're just they're not going to theaters, they're not going to movies. They're not, you know they're just not. They're not spending their money. They're, you know, they may complain about, I can't have my ordinary life. But meanwhile, their bank accounts are getting bigger and bigger, which I think will just be, you know, boom. It, you know, that's going to be, you know, uh, when, when this breaks, I'm sure people are going to say, look at all the money I've saved over this period. I'm now go out and have a good time. <laughs> I, I'm I, seriously. I, I think that, and you made the analogy of World War II. My mother, same thing, came over uh, as an immigrant right after World War II, and she said, even though the war the war ended, she said the place was still destroyed for years. I mean, it took them forever to to clean over up Europe, afterwards. Not here. Yeah, in Europe. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but 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 interesting, you know, as this does ends and and similar to the end of World War II when things started to take off, you know, I've often thought that this generation, the kids coming in now that have had to put up and live with this, they will be the next generation. They will be the COVID generation that is responsible in in running that shift. It'll be interesting if once things, as you're mentioning, do take off, if yeah. the interest rates will follow. Then after being historic 
historically low for you know now will be what twenty years. Yeah, it's a. Uh, they will. I think they will slowly grow up. And once again, I will look at the nineteen twenties, uh, where that's uh, what uh, I remember talking to some. Oh, they're passed away now, but some real older people many years ago, and they would talk about you know how they were affected. Uh, their family was affected. They were young themselves, but they remember how their family was affected in the mm-hmm. 1920s. And yeah, they 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 became very prosperous. A lot of them were in fa- were a lot of, were farmers even around here. I mean, there's you know where we have houses now. They had farms and uh, and, and other business people. And 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 the and the interest rate did go up. Uh, but they were complaining that well. Uh, I remember one guy telling me, he said, well, the interest rates went up to 6% interest and, uh, yeah. at the time of the crash, you know, the stock market crash and the Great Depression began. And he's saying, you know, he was complaining that was way, way too high. Uh, but in fact, uh, they, they, there was not a, you know, it was not like Germany. A lot of people look and say, oh, are we going to wind up like Germany after World War I, where you had to take a wheelbarrow full of uh, Deutschmarks in your wheelbarrow to buy a loaf of bread? Yeah. You know that we didn't have that. That was that was an exaggerated case, but uh, that was a very different case because of reparations and all the money that was draining out of Germany at the time. But but it, but, but but North America, you know, pe- people, you know, had a, had a good decade. Uh, interest rates up went gradually, and when, as they were on the cusp of the of the Great Depression, uh, they were uh, many many people were in a good good spot. Now, of course, that Great Depression was a problem. But uh, certainly the, the 10 years afterwards, uh, it, w- it was pretty good. And, and I think, again, after World War I, I mean, boy, you couldn't, I mean, people so, had, were so optimistic in the late 40s and 50s and into the 60s. I mean, life was just wonderful. I mean, people, you just look hmm. back, you could go back and look at that era and read about it or see films about it or people talk about it. And all they remember is, oh, well, we got a new house, we got a new car, we went on a vacation, things we never ever were ever able to do. And I think, uh, you know, I think our kids who, you know, who went, went, if they're young adults in, in that, uh, or in that period, in the period after our, uh, you know, we come out of all this, I think they're going to say, man, life is nice. <laughs> yeah, uh, they good just point. have to be careful of overspending. That's what they right. have to be worried about. Henry Jasek with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. Henry, let's talk about the October uh, crisis uh, back in 1970. Uh, the bloc leader has come out, uh, came out yesterday and said uh, he wants an apology from a government for, uh, I guess, people that were uh, blanketly arrested during the October crisis. Your thoughts on, uh, and maybe a quick, you know, synopsis of what happened way back in 1970 and your thoughts of, of the bloc bringing this up now. Well, I think uh, many people were shocked. Well, there were two, depending on how you're looking at it, everybody was shocked in some ways, although not everybody agreed as to what the shock occurred. Certainly people in English Canada and uh, certainly a number of people in Quebec were surprised that, you know, the the, uh, terrorist group, the FLQ, uh, you know, they kidnapped a couple of people, uh, they killed a politician, uh, that was serious, very serious business. And even before that, they were putting bombs in post uh, post yeah. post office box, you know, in uh, post box post office boxes. And uh, so that was a serious business. Now, a lot of the a lot of the uh, more militant nationalists and the intellectuals, people like myself, I have a lot of friends over there. I used to hear it from them. We're all upset about the response of the government and Pierre Trudeau. And he said, "Listen, we're we're not we're not going to put up with this." He invoked the War Measures Act. He put, uh, you know, sent some troops into Quebec, and he said, uh, 
you know, because we're re- really, if, you know, really got them very upset. It was one thing to blow up the mail. It was another thing when you kidnap somebody and you kill, you know, you kidnap yeah. somebody and then you kill them. So, you know, uh, I would think that that's what happened. And, uh, and there were two sides to that. And it's still, it's interesting. The people who didn't like the fact that uh, Pierre Trudeau acted so decisively uh, are still angry 50 years later. I'm just utterly amazed they are, but they but they are, and uh, they want an apology. And I think politically, it's the Bloc Québécois. I mean, they they still probably have this as a bad. They believe that's a yeah. bad memory. And of course, the politician who was uh, captured and killed was a liberal, by the way. He was not not mm-hmm. a not not one of the, one, 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 not one of their own. And uh, they, the, those, uh, you know, the uh, they they're they're angry. But I can't I cannot see that uh, the government is going to do that. Uh, basically, the government will look out. And first of all, they're a liberal government, <laughs> and, and uh, they're going to say. And it know, was Justin's dad that invoked Justin's the War Measures Act back did, in 1970. Liberal politician killed in Quebec. And they're, you know, they're, and they also realized probably for nine of the ten provinces, everybody believed that Pierre Trudeau did the right thing. Yeah. And a whole bunch of Quebec people actually did as well. But the militant nationalists and, and people who wanted to separate, uh, uh, you know, uh, from, 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 from Canada re- really objected to that. And they were people who said, you were, our, our civil liberties were being infringed by the federal government. Well... I don't think this, I, I don't think anything is going to happen here, but it's uh, it is it is sort of uh, when I hear about this, I say, oh my God, I, am I living 50 years ago? Because the arguments I'm hearing now for the apology, I, I heard the arguments 50 years ago. So how do you think the res- so how do you think the the prime minister will respond to this? It's it's like it's like a no win situation for him here. That's right. Well, the thing is, the the Bloc Québécois is fishing for votes in the next election. They're trying to yeah. say. Yeah, it, this is really, I mean, that's what they're constantly doing, of course. The bloc is always trying to figure out how they can get some leverage on, on some of the liberal seats and, and flip them in the next election. And they're, so they're raising this, and so they're, but, you know, that's, this is, the people who are most upset about this in Quebec are, are really the older, really the older Francophone generation who are nationalists. I think this is not a big deal for, for, for most of the uh, the Quebec pop. Uh, you know, population, including Frank, younger francophones and even middle-aged francophones, they didn't live through it. Uh, this is not an uh, an important issue for them. They've heard about it. They probably heard their parents complain about it, but this is not something that's really important to them. And so, constituencies that might have a, an older popula- francophone population, maybe it'll work a bit for the Bloc Québécois, but. I don't think uh, the federal government has much to fear here. And if they did make an apology, they probably would get a backlash from the other provinces. And for people saying, you know, how, your father was right. Why did, why did you do this? Yeah, good point. So how will he play this? How will the prime minister play this in Quebec? Because he's got to obviously play both sides of the fence here. He doesn't want to alienate any votes yeah. uh, in Quebec. Uh, that being said, uh, as you said, to, with the rest of the country, he doesn't want to look like he's uh, catering to them. So how does he walk that fine line and still bring in votes from Quebec? Yeah, I don't know. I'm not exactly sure what the speech will look like, but I mean, I'll, you know, it'll probably say, well, you know, that was another era, that was another time, you know, we can't, uh, you know, um, you know, it's, it's hard to, you know, hard to put ourselves in the shoes of people who were fear, you know, who, who uh, had to worry about this and how serious 
and how big this, uh, you know, the, these terrorist groups were going to be, and what more would they do? Would they, ca- you know, uh, kidnap more people and execute them? They didn't know that, so you know that it probably, you know, was something that we can't judge today. We're not, we're not part of that. Uh, we're, we don't, you know, that was not a top something that we really understood, but let's turn our attention to what we really do understand, and that's the virus, and we got to get rid of it. So segue to that pretty quickly, I would think. So I, I don't that's, know. A, that's a very valid point about bringing something like that up in the middle of a pandemic, but I guess the anniversary uh, signifies yeah. that. Uh, is this a sign that there is a feeling or a movement to go back there? I don't think so. I, I really don't think uh, the Canadian people, even the people in Quebec, want to go back there. Uh, I haven't heard, maybe I've missed it, I haven't heard that the Quebec government, which is not a liberal government, I haven't heard them talk about it too much, so uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, 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 just thought, I just think this is, a, this is just something to sort of keep, you know, get, yeah. you know, basically keep the liberals at bay a bit, uh, but I don't think, uh, I, I, I just don't think, I think this is going to die out pretty quickly, that's what I think. I don't think their heart is really in it, it's just... Just throw a grenade out there and see what happens. Yeah, exactly. And I just well, that's a good, that's a big one. The grenade and eat it. I don't think yeah, so. I hear you, Henry Jasek, with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Henry, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Okay, very good. Same to you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is an interesting issue, uh, having kids myself. When the pandemic began, parents were told not to worry about their kids' screen time because it was something that kept them occupied. You might remember pre-COVID-19, screen time was something that uh, a lot of people were talking about. And, you know, make sure your kid doesn't have too much screen time and gets out and has a little face-to-face and some exercise and such. So I guess, in a sense, during the pandemic, it has been a savior, as we've all seen. You know, our life moved to a Zoom platform. Uh, on the other hand, when do you start to pull it back and say, okay, this is getting out of hand? Let's bring in Emma Duerden. She is assistant professor, faculty of education, Western University, lead author on a study uh, that we are talking about, and she is with us now. Emma, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, thanks, Scott, for having me on the show. So has this been a savior, or is this a problem now? Well, during the pandemic, we did our study examining the number of hours that uh, parents uh, were, were reporting for their children ex- being exposed to television. So I think during the pandemic, um, you know, we also surveyed parents about their stress levels, and we found that actually over 80% of the parents, they were reporting moderate to high levels of stress. So I think for, for, you know, I'm a parent as well. I think we can, uh, we were all in a situation where we were working from home and potentially children were seeing, you know, were using their, were watching more and more television and playing, you know, more video games. So in the short term, potentially it was a savior. But when we start to look at the actual numbers, we found in our study that 40% of parents reported that their child spent at least six hours watching television and video games. And so that's when we, it starts to be a little concerning because it was in the short term, you know, it was a couple of months. And, and then, but we have to also realize that, you know, screens can sometimes be addictive, right? So I think even as adults, we, you know, we realize that we, be, we can start depending on our screens more and more. So that's when it can become more concerning. 
And obviously, during a pandemic, more downtime, more you know, needing more things to uh, you know to keep us ourselves occupied. And of course, we can't go out and and go anywhere. One thing I wanted to bring up, and this is the one thing I've noticed, because again, you know, I remember being a kid in the '70s, and we were all going to hell in a handbasket because we were spending way too much time watching Happy Days, and we were sitting in front of a television set all of the time. Uh, the one thing that I do notice, and that that does maybe you know a silver lining in all of this, a lot of the games when the kids do play them they're playing them with their friends so there's actually some some engagement going on there some interaction with a friend or two or what have you uh, is that a factor here yeah you know what i think that's a really good point because there are some video games for example where there's other players and there is a social aspect and i think that there is a difference between watching television or watching youtube alone uh, versus uh, playing in a group setting. And certainly when children are, you know, they're reading a book through, you know, some of these great apps that they have where uh, grandparents can read books with their children, with their with their grandchildren, or other, or if children are using Zoom to speak with, you know, family members, That's there's a big difference between that, between uh, kind of sitting completely idle, not engaging at all, versus interacting with others. And I think we really need to do more research in this area to figure out those differences. So is it a case of how much time we or the kids are watching or what it is that they're watching, what they are participating in? Yeah, ex- yeah, I think we really need to better understand that. For our study, you know, we wanted to do this quick snapshot, you know, what was happening at the, you know, during the pandemic, you know, what were parents doing? And we we didn't have time to, you know, begin to answer all of those questions. And we were only able to ask parents about their perceptions of their children's uh, television and video game habits. So we weren't actually able to, to do something like uh, to try to quantify right. social media use, which is also another opportunity to engage with others. And that can also really help children, right, that they're interacting with others, even if it's only virtually online. So uh, what you're suggesting is as time has gone by and it's obviously become difficult with us all to deal with this pandemic, this has become, or you're concerned, it's becoming more of a babysitter. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, things are, you know, potentially different now for some families whose children have gone back to school, so they still have that interaction. But many, we saw that, you know, thousands of parents are are choosing to keep their children at home. And so those parents are probably working from home as well. So it could be that there is, for for those children, that they are potentially watching more screen time. And I think, in addition, many children who are attending school, they're probably not able to engage in the same extracurricular activities as before. So probably they are yeah. depending more and more on screens and I think also as we're going into the winter time we're going to see more and more dependent more uh, doing doing things activities indoors and, and it's going to be involving you know probably more screens too yeah and you bring up a valid point with school there's no sports going on or really any clubs or anything like that at that at this point to uh, you know to take up that extra time and act, uh, extra actor uh, after school activity and such so what can parents do here uh, in, in order to make sure that when they are online or on the screen that they're doing something that is engaging and 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 how do they make up for that lost time that they're not getting in the playground that they're not getting with physical activity what what, what sort of advice do you have for the mama? Well, you know, I think that we can't just say that all screens are bad because it's a reality of modern life, right? We're uh, all in front of screens. Yeah. 
all the time. And so, and also we have to think that, you know, this is probably going to be a part of our children's lives too, that they have, it's not as if we can just, you know, completely take away screens and that they're not going to be until they're 18 years old. Screens are going to be, you know, a part of their life. And there's lots of, you know, for example, coding programs for children, you know, they're learning to do computer programming now when they're in, you know, six, seven years old. So, so we, we have to, you know, realize this is a part of our, you know, kind of our day to day and that screens are always going to be around. It's just, we have to think about just managing them, uh, trying to be present when, you know, children are, you know, watching television so you can at least engage and talk with them about what they're doing. And also just having things like curfews, you know, I think curfews on, on screen time and about um, just kind of trying to set more of a schedule. It's difficult. I'm a parent too. So I, I understand the yeah. challenges that families face. How does online learning factor into this? Because obviously, out of necessity, we've seen uh, situations where online learning has gone up and obviously teachers having to be more nimble in order to to perform these functions and such. But again, at the end of the day, even though it's online learning, it still is more screen time. Is that a concern? Yeah, that's right. I think it goes hand in hand, though, with the interaction. Typically, those are live classes for for school for elementary yeah. school children, at least. It, it certainly has changed. It certainly has changed a lot what they're doing in September compared to what they were doing at the end of last year. That's for sure. It's it's they're, they're leaps and bounds ahead of where they were. Yes, absolutely. So I think that. Um, I think if there's, you know, we, we call it, uh, I'm doing online learning as well as a, as, a, as a university professor. So we call them, you know, the synchronous mm-hmm. sessions where you're interacting through Zoom or another online platform really is kind of, you know, quite similar as, you know, to, to engaging in person. Uh, so I think there's, I think there's a big difference between um, children looking at a screen and, and without any interaction versus having that in-classroom interaction. Even if it's online, virtually. Uh, just a little aside, I have a, a, a boy in grade 8 and a daughter who is online university right now and obviously not in residence here at home. And it's fascinating because uh, I get to see what's going on. She'll all of a sudden bring down her laptop and go, look at this. And she, oh, yeah. It's like her sociology or psychology class. And it is. It's very impressive how they're doing this and, and how they can interact. And and uh, as a parent and somebody who didn't grow up in that generation, it, it is very impressive to see. And uh, uh, it also lets us take a peek at what they're doing, which I think is fabulous. Yeah, actually, I think that's really that's really nice. And for a lot of um, for for colleagues and for friends that have decided to uh, keep their children at, at home and do online schooling, they're now engaged in their in their students in their children's learning, which is which is really nice. They're getting to see exactly what their children are doing instead of waiting to the end of the day when they pick them up and they say, "What did you do in school today?" and they say uh, <laughs> nothing or uh, or they or you know you get you know one word answer. They're they're starting to become really really engaged. So I think there's there's a lot of benefits to that. Oh, and it really opens up the discussion too. You don't get that oh nothing anymore. It's look, watch this. It's it's pretty fascinating. And 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 she seems to be just as eager to show us what is going on, which is great. Uh, Emma Dwarden has been with us, assistant professor, faculty of education, Western University, lead author uh, lead author on this study. And you can also find it in the Globe and Mail, by the way. Emma, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Be well. Great. Thanks so much, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Yesterday, the Ontario Premier uh, said that there was some positive news in regard to projections uh, on the way. Uh, that being said, we are seeing numbers again creep up uh, back up in Ontario over the 900 uh, mark, 934 new cases 
uh, today. Uh, obviously, though, we have seen if we uh, follow the protocol, do everything we're supposed to do, we can, we, we can flatten this curve, much like we uh, did in the summer. Is it the same sort of thing uh, here? And, and, and does, or does it require a, a different type of process? Let's bring in Chris Bow, Research Chair in the Department of Applied Mathematics, who's done some research into SARS and the tw- uh, 2009 pandemic influenza and is a specialist in mathematical computer modeling with social distancing, all that sort of thing, vaccination outbreaks at the University of Waterloo, and is with us now. Chris, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, thank you, Scott. Thank you for having me. So the, the Premier has alluded that there could be some uh, positive projections coming out. Uh, what do you read into that? Uh, you know, we had seen sort of a flattening from those spikes. We saw over a 1,000 uh, last week. However, you know, we're, we're still seeing cases now in the 900 range. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I'll be curious to see to see what they say at 3 o'clock today. Um, that's where they're going to they're gonna release their latest projections. Um so, you know, the seven-day averages are, are still going up in terms of the number of cases. So I, I, I think, uh, you know, in the short term, we might still see an increase in cases. But what the premier might have been referring to is the R number, which is, which is a very important number uh, or, or one of the very important numbers that we keep track of during a pandemic. And, and explain that? Tells you, yeah, sorry. So, yeah, the R number tells you uh, how many additional infections each infected person produces. So, you know, when that number is bigger than one, you know, say it's two, for example, then one person creates two cases. Those right. two people then create four cases, you know, four cr- creates eight, and it keeps growing. But if that R number is less than one, it means that, you know, each infected person produces less than one new infection. Uh, and that means eventually the, the curve will... Uh, be flattened and the cases will start going down again. Um, so, you know, I'm just speculating, but I, I think they might um, look at their latest R numbers and say, hey, uh, our efforts are working uh, and we might uh, see um, a flattening of the curve. But, you know, that's just my guess. I'm not sure exactly what they'll say at 3 o'clock. So this could be the reaction to the messaging coming out in regard to we have to keep uh, going with this protocol. I mean, mem- uh, many had said that uh, during the latter part of the summer, we perhaps were a bit lax, eased off a little bit when we saw, uh, as we slowly came down the backside of the, f- of the first wave, uh, perhaps uh, relaxed our protocol a little bit, and then we started to see a surge. Can we visibly see in this data when we aggressively try to uh, administer the protocol and, and, and push this thing down as opposed to when we let up on the gas. Yeah, you can see that in the data, and this has been studied not only in, uh, in Canada, but uh, there are studies in many populations looking at the effect of these protocols on the transmission. And you see the effect, but it tends to be delayed. So, for example, uh, when was it? Maybe three or four weeks ago, the premier announced some further restrictions on large groups, for example, um, mm-hmm. and uh, indoor dining in Toronto, um, etc., extending the outdoor patio season to January. Uh, and so uh, because it takes two or three weeks for those changes in protocols to, to influence the case numbers, there is this delay happening. So um, the cases are um, um, growing less quickly than they would uh, if we hadn't done those protocols, and you're absolutely right as well that you know if we if we're very diligent and, and we keep up 
with our, our, our social distancing and, and masks and uh, trying to reduce any kind of unnecessary contact, uh, then you know, the, the, that means we have much better chances for flattening the curve. Uh, and more importantly, if, you know, you, what you can do is you can do uh, surveys of populations. You can take blood samples and, and see who's got the antibodies, how many people have the antibodies. Uh, and that tells you how many people have been infected. And we find from those that only a small percentage of Ontarians have been infected as of August. And that's, that's, um, it's, good, it's good news because it means that our curve flattening worked before and, and it will continue to work. So, uh, you know, yes, we, we can flatten this curve again, uh, but we've got to be diligent, um, um, uh, you know, with, with following our protocols and with using our masks uh, and, and we'll have to kind of do our, do our share. We've certainly heard a lot about COVID-19 fatigue and, and people just getting towards the end of their rope. Lots are complaining when there's discussion of moving uh, people back into restricted areas. We certainly know the hot spots and how they were moved back to a modified version of stage two. But the small decrease or what you're talking about now is actually evidence that that is starting to work. Is that accurate? That's correct, yeah. So it's, uh, uh, it's indisputable that these protocols... Whenever populations, we've tried them uh, across the world, these protocols, things like restricting groups, um, closing schools, when that's been applied, although we're still open at the moment, um, increased mask use, they always cut the transmission. So these things do work. Uh, And, you know, we've got to try to get the right combination of of measures uh, that allows us to flatten the curve with, with as little disruption as possible. And, you know, I, I think mask use is a good example of something that we could do more of, which is minimally disruptive. I mean, it's a, it's a pain to wear masks. Yeah. I know that because I do uh, Taekwondo with a mask on, <laughs> if you can imagine yeah. that. Um, but, uh, um, but mask use uh, cuts transmission, and it may also make uh, outcomes less severe. Um, so that's an example of, of something you can do that doesn't require shutting down businesses or closing things. So we have to get that right mix of things. The other thing I think which has been lost is that in the debate is that, you know, there, it's not like a one thing or the other. It's not like you either can control the cases uh, or you can have an open business. Uh, there are many interventions which actually allow you to have uh, 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 to keep businesses open. For example, yeah. if you can test very rapidly and if you can do contact tracing, then we can, we can nip those outbreaks in the bud. Uh, and in countries where this, they've done this, it, it's worked. And, uh, because they nipped the problem in the bud, they were able to more or less remain open this fall. Um, and so, you know, on the, on, on the side of contact tracing, it means, you know, if, if we have, have been contact traced, we should cooperate and list, you know, list the people we've been in contact with. And when you go to a restaurant, if they ask for your name, you know, don't put Joe Blow, you know, put your real name and your real number. Um, <laughs> really, because yeah. If, 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 we cooperate, if we cooperate with contact tracing, it means hopefully that restaurant can be open in a month and we can go back and, and enjoy it again. Um, so is this a, a clear indication that although we may have slipped a little bit towards the end of last summer, now the public is getting the message and we are getting back to protocol? Yeah, it's always a question of like how much. Uh, and, you know, yeah. certainly you know, we, have, we have some restrictions in place here that, um, you know, they're allowing businesses some freedom to operate. Um, 
while also controlling the infection. So I, I think people are getting the message, but, but we can always, there's always room for improvement, right? So I still see, for example, you know, looking out my window, I still see, uh, you know, some, uh, you know, people walking down the street. I know they're not part of the same bubble. They should be distancing, but they aren't. So there's always room for improvement. So, um, you know, all the efforts we've done so far, they've saved many thousands and thousands of lives. You know, that's clear. Uh, and and if if we can continue to be um, really careful with uh, things like masks and social distancing, you know, then we can, uh, you know, hopefully lockdown does, doesn't have to happen again. But that depends upon everyone immediately uh, being more careful with their distancing and their mask use, reducing unnecessary contact, etc. Um, and so, yeah, so the short answer is, is, you know, we're doing well, but we could be doing better. Chris Bow has been with us, research chair in the Department of Applied Mathematics and expert when it comes to disease outbreaks, vaccination and such. University of Waterloo. Chris, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Yeah, thank you, Scott. You too. Bye-bye. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.